0: On April 5, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln awoke from what was, by all accounts, a nightmare. He dreamt he was in the White House. As he meandered through the rooms, he heard the sounds of people grieving. While he could not initially determine where the sounds were coming from, he eventually came across people congregated around a coffin. He asked about the body. The man replied, The President. He was killed by an assassin. A loud burst of weeping awoke the President from his nightmare. President Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, were known followers of the spiritualist movement, a religious movement that posited the spirits of the dead could commune with the living. The movement had 8 million followers by the end of the 19th century. The Lincolns held these beliefs so closely that they even had ghost photography conducted after the passing of their son. Lincoln was suspected of having psychic abilities, as he would often know the outcomes of battles before receiving word, and he predicted he would be the President of the United States when he was only 12 years old. While Lincoln was not opposed to the paranormal, he did not discuss his dream until several days later. He explained it left him with a lingering emotional response, eventually discussing it with a few individuals who were close to him. Although he found the dream to be odd, he did not identify it as prophetic and insisted he was not the president in the coffin. Additionally, Lincoln had been the subject of an assassin's attempt just a year earlier and believed it was this prior attempt that may have given rise to the nightmare. Yet, just days after his disturbing dream at 10.15 p.m. while attending the play Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater, Confederate spy John Wilkes Booth approached Lincoln's theater box and shot the president in the back of the head, mortally wounding him. After eight hours in a coma, Abraham Lincoln died on April 15th at 7.22 a.m. The president was laid in state in the East Room of the White House, the same room he found the mourners in his dream. This episode is about Abraham Lincoln and precognition.
1: Hello and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono.
0: and Dr. David Morellos. So David, Yeah.
1: when people think of Abraham Lincoln, they're generally not thinking about precognition or clairvoyance. This is true. Yeah, I certainly wasn't. In fact, I had no idea Lincoln had a precognitive dream until I was reading some research on precognition. Now, I would definitely say this topic is more your wheelhouse than mine, but I really enjoyed researching this topic.
0: Oh, that's nice.
1: Yeah. To be honest, when I started looking into precognition, I was pretty sure there wasn't much to it. That those who claimed to have this ability were using some sort of parlor trick, or that it was just due to our tendency as humans to underestimate coincidences, or that even if it did exist, it was extremely rare but some of the research I found kind of changed my opinion. Or at least it opened my mind to some other possibilities.
0: Oh, that's the point, right?
1: Yeah, I agree. So before I begin, I wanted to share some of what I learned about precognition. This wasn't a term I was very familiar with, although I had heard of clairvoyance before. While the two terms are often used interchangeably, I learned that clairvoyance is the ability to see the future, while precognition is seeing an event before it happens. Both clairvoyance and precognition are part of the larger concept of psi, which is the area of study for parapsychologists. I wanted to point out that parapsychology is not an area of psychology, although in its early days it was. The fields have had a sort of falling out, but anyway, the concept of psi includes clairvoyance and precognition, telepathy, near death experiences, hauntings, apparitions, and poltergeists, which we talked about in our Amityville episode, and psychokinesis, which we discussed in our episode on the Philip experiment. So, in general, many in the field of psychology discount all of the psi experiences. Noting that there's been no convincing empirical evidence to show any of them truly exist. And it turns out psychologists are a pretty skeptical bunch. There was a great article by Dr. Steve Taylor in Psychology Today in 2014 where he indicated that psychologists are actually more skeptical of these phenomena than other scientists. He explained that in a survey of 1,100 university professors, about half as many of the psychology professors believed extrasensory perception, or ESP, was a, quote, fact or likely possibility, compared to professors in other disciplines. He went on to discuss several possibilities for this, mainly that psychologists study the human mind and therefore are more well-versed in its capabilities. Additionally, we do behavioral research and are aware of the high threshold for finding something to be statistically significant. And also that psychology has a history of struggling to be accepted as a legitimate science. And, you know, I think if you talk to a lot of psychologists, they would say ESP experiences or psi experiences, you know, they aren't possible within the bounds of science. But Dr. Taylor also pointed out that our very understanding of science has changed dramatically, particularly with the discoveries of quantum physics. While we once believed time moved in a linear fashion in only one direction, we now know that at least at the quantum level, time can actually move in reverse. Quantum physicists have been able to produce something called backwards or retrocausation, where the effect can actually occur before the cause. That actually blew my mind, David. Yeah,
0: I bet. (laughs)
1: Now, we don't know for sure that time can move in such a direction for anything outside of the smallest particles of matter, but the theory is that if it's possible at that level, it may be possible at other levels as well. And I remember like reading when that research came out, some of the quantum physicists were like, this could have profound implications for the field of psychology. So that actually brings me to some of the research done on precognition in particular. In 2011, Cornell psychology professor emeritus Daryl Bem published some pretty remarkable findings in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which, by the way, is a very well-respected journal, and it's very well-respected in mainstream psychology. In this article entitled Feeling the Future, Dr. Bem provided his results for nine experiments he ran on precognition and premonition at Cornell University. The study included over 1,000 participants, and he found significant evidence in support of precognition in eight of the nine experiments. Additionally, Dr. Bem wanted others to replicate the study to see if they obtained similar results, so he made all of his methods, data, and statistical analysis available and encouraged others to run their own experiments. Just as an aside, Dr. Bem had been very skeptical of the existence of any of the Psi phenomenon and only decided to run his own experiments after reading the existing research and finding it wasn't all the nonsense that he originally thought it was. Anyway, his experiments were really interesting. I don't have time to explain them all here, But one of them involved determining if rehearsing a word list after a participant was asked to recall the words would increase their recall abilities. So that's a little confusing, so let me explain. When we're asked to recall verbal stimuli, one thing that helps us do this is rehearsing the stimuli in our mind. So, David, imagine somebody gives you their phone number, but you don't have anything handy to write it down. Right. What do you typically do to remember it?
0: Yeah, you repeat it over and over and over again, hoping that it'll sort of stick.
1: Right. So you're more likely to remember it once you get to some paper and a pen if you rehearse the phone number, either out loud or in your head, than if you only hear it once and then don't rehearse it. Right. Anyway, in this particular study, Dr. Bem showed participants a list of common nouns on a computer screen. He then had participants type out as many of the words as they could remember. After this, a computer program randomly selected half of the words from the list and had the participants engage in rehearsal exercises for those words. What he found was that the words that were rehearsed after they were asked to recall them were statistically more likely to be remembered than the words that were not rehearsed. Wow. Say, what? <laughs> That's crazy, right? Yeah. And as I said, there were seven other studies using different methods that demonstrated things in the future affected things in the present. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> and we'll have a link to, to these studies on our, our discussion page, but you guys have to check them out. It's going to blow your minds. So, as is the case with research, it's really not enough to find significant results on one study or even one set of studies all conducted by the same researcher. We have to make sure there aren't confounds occurring, such as confirmation bias or the file drawer effect, which is where researchers only publish studies with significant results. Anyway, in the years since Dr. Bem's original studies at Cornell, there have been several researchers who attempted to replicate his findings. And in December of 2015, BEM, along with Tresoldi, Raybron, and Duggan, conducted a meta-analysis of studies on precognition. They examined 90 experiments from 33 labs in 14 countries. And guess what the findings were, David? Go ahead. Overall, the studies showed statistically significant evidence of precognition. But one thing to note is that this precognition wasn't anything the participants were conscious of. It wasn't like Abraham Lincoln's dream about his death. So they were all things that were just kind of going on beyond people's awareness. Nonetheless, it's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Now, the author stated this still may not be profound enough for most psychologists to change their minds about the possibility that Psy exists but it may be a step in that direction. One of the points Dr. Taylor made in his Psychology Today article was that rigidly holding on to a belief that something does not exist can be just as problematic as holding on to a belief that it does exist. When we're too married to our preconceived beliefs, we may miss things that contradict or at least don't conform to them. In this sense, it's like confirmation bias. Imagine if no one ever considered the possibility that the earth revolved around the sun, or that the earth was indeed round instead of flat. Those things are just common knowledge to us, but at the time of Copernicus and Pythagoras, when they were proposing these ideas, there were skeptics who insisted they were wrong, that they already quote-unquote knew how such things work, how such things worked. I think Dr. Taylor makes a valid point in stating that we as behavioral scientists, don't want to be so arrogant as to say we already have a complete awareness of reality. We're constantly learning about the universe and finding new evidence to suggest reality is not always in line with our prior beliefs. His quote at the end of the article was really nice. He said, quote, There's no reason why psychology cannot be scientific at the same time as accepting this that we don't have a complete awareness of reality and that we should be open to exploring this further. So, you know, I, I know that that kind of departs from my usual stance on such things, but like this research I was just I was just blown away by it. And again, it's not the same as proving that people have premonitions, mm-hmm. but it's still really cool.
0: Well, I think that it's important to acknowledge that piece of it though, like when we go to research something you know, we do have our own ideas, you know, but w- but you're really trying to avoid that idea of confirmation bias, which is I'm only going to take the pieces that uh, that don't challenge my own worldview. Right. Right. And so when you're really engaging research, you, you kind of have to free yourself up to hmm. I'm going to let me see where this takes me.
1: Yeah. And just be open to the possibilities. I mean, even when it sounds like something crazy, that an effect can influence a cause. That's, yeah. that's wild, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to me that you came up with the idea of using Abraham Lincoln as the narrative for this episode and as our sort of departure point for this episode. Yeah. You know, for our listeners, you and I toyed around with this idea as a way of tying this week's episode into an interview that we did with the good folks uh, from the Occult Confessions podcast, where we discussed parapsychology and its role in the field of professional psychology.
1: Yeah, that was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, so for those of you who are interested in the history of occult, definitely give them a listen if you get a chance. It's a great podcast.
1: Yeah, it really is.
0: So what is interesting to me about Lincoln is that there's actually quite a bit of history and depth to him that I would assume most people probably don't know. So one of the writers that I've mentioned on this podcast in the past, that being Gore Vidal, wrote extensively about Abraham Lincoln and viewed Lincoln as one of the most enigmatic and complicated political figures in American history. And if you've ever read his work on Lincoln, including the novel or any of his essays, there's a tremendous amount of depth to the man that goes way beyond the basics of what I, at least, was taught in history class. According to Vidal, who relied a lot on Lincoln's business partner, a man named William Herndon, Lincoln and Herndon had a law firm together, Lincoln was most likely an illegitimate child, and it was rumored that his mother was illegitimate as well. Vidal wrote that Lincoln roundly rejected Christianity and even wrote a book on this entitled Infidelity, where he sought to debunk the Bible through reason. Vidal contended that Lincoln made no mention of God in his early speeches and only made vague references to God later on, but never to Jesus. Gore Vidal also contended that, at heart, Lincoln was a fatalist, or someone who generally believed that future events were predetermined, which implies a feeling of resignation in the face of fate. This is generally the attitude that we, as humans, are powerless to do anything other than what we actually do. So that's kind of interesting.
1: That's all really interesting. I didn't know that about him.
0: So another note on Lincoln that Vidal points out has to do with Lincoln's affinity for women, which, as a young man, saw him afflicted with syphilis. No. Yeah.
1: That is so scandalous.
0: Yeah. Supposedly, Lincoln was cured of this by an enterprising doctor in Cincinnati. Remember, this was before penicillin. But it also was speculated that Lincoln gave syphilis to his wife, Mary Todd, later on, and that that may have been responsible for the premature deaths of three of their sons.
1: Wow.
0: These deaths seemed to cause a great deal of guilt and melancholy in Lincoln, which is something he became known for later on in life, that is, his very solemn and stern affect. So, one last, maybe interesting fact about Lincoln. According to Vidal, he suffered from bouts of constipation, for which he regularly used a laxative called Blue Mass. This was, again, according to records left by his business partner, William Herndon, from whom Vidal draws a lot of information. Just something to remember as I'm going to re-round on this a bit later on.
1: I'm curious to see how that connects.
0: Okay. (laughs) So, quick disclaimer, I will say that many of Gore Vidal's contentions about Lincoln are debated by other scholars, but if you ask me... Vidal does more than an adequate job of defending his scholarship, but that's just my opinion, so take it with a grain of salt. So why is this interesting to me, regarding precognition or the ability to predict future events? For me, all of these interesting little tidbits about Lincoln really fit into the idea that he had the ability of precognition. So let me explain. Precognition is essentially the ability to foretell events in the future. Of course, this seems far-fetched as it is commonly believed that time is linear, only moving in one direction from cause to effect, which, as you've shown in your contributions to this episode, Jessica, has been challenged through quantum physics. God, I love quantum physics, don't you?
1: I do too. I don't totally understand it, but I love it.
0: Yeah, it's (laughs) like here comes quantum physics to turn everything you thought you knew about reality on its head. It's fascinating stuff, I just wish I had the mind to understand it more than I do.
1: Yeah, you and me both.
0: Yeah. So at any rate, to me, the term that I would probably use more than precognition is rather intuition, which I have always defined as a sort of combination between rational thought and feeling that, like precognition, can signal future events or give us glimpses into what's in store for us sometime down the road or help us make decisions that can in turn dictate the future. This gets back to our episode where we discussed Ouija and the idea of something in the unconscious mind directing the movements of the hand on the planchette without the user ever realizing it. In this sense, it's like the unconscious mind moving through the body can have a wisdom all its own. Well, what's interesting about this is that it's been argued quite thoroughly, I would say, that the body does indeed have a wisdom all its own, and that is when we begin to really understand this. That we begin to understand our intuitive powers. One of the research methods that is used a great deal in transpersonal psychology is something called phenomenology. But basically, the philosophical orientation of phenomenology contends that there is a truth that can be gotten to by examining how we directly experience the world, which, if we're honest, has to come through our bodies. One philosopher who was a phenomenologist, a gentleman by the name of Maurice Merleau-Ponty, makes this argument about language. No one learns language by memorizing words out of a book. As a matter of fact, we learn language by actually speaking and hearing, which is a very embodied act. We learn pretty much everything through the body first, in some way, shape, or form. So what's interesting about phenomenology, and this is of course not by any means a complete description, as I'm no expert on this, so there's that. But what's interesting about the philosophical orientation to me is that it seeks to look for truth through direct experience and reflection. In other words... There is a strong emphasis on the subjective, or how we consciously experience the world around us. For the most part, phenomenologists reject the idea of being able to be objective, as we are subjective beings experiencing the universe around us, and cannot remove ourselves from it no matter how we seek to control the conditions. Well, Merleau-Ponty's contributions to phenomenology had a lot to do with how the body plays into this and how we feel everything from the outside world through our body before we process it cognitively. If we take a step back and think about it, it's actually a very interesting argument. For instance, if we're not for our bodies, we would not know what emotion truly was, as it is the feeling in our body that really allows us to understand different emotions before we process these intellectually and add labels to them. For people who do body work, helping someone through a psychological problem can be as simple as moving energy from one part of a client's body to another, as it's the body having an effect on the mind. In the field of psychology, we usually see it the other way around, with the mind having more of an influence on the body. So I would argue that this is the basis for a lot of psychology that has stressed the mind-body connection that we hear about so much in contemporary psychology. How do these things interact with each other and the natural world? How I'd like to describe it to the guys I work with in the day-to-day goes something like this. Emotional thinking comes from the older part of the brain, which all mammals have. For the sake of this example, that's like a horse. But we also have the frontal lobe part of the brain, which other animals do not. This is the part of the brain that inhibits, so to speak, our emotional and instinctual drives in the service of things like long-term goals. That's the jockey riding the horse. In substance abuse, those wrestling with an addiction can become overpowered by the horse and succumb to emotional drives that are very often irrational in nature. These may be things like denial, or the very strong yet sometimes irrational idea that if they do not get the drug, that they will die. This part of the brain can truly believe this idea, and it does so because oftentimes the more rational frontal lobe, the jockey, is asleep at the wheel, so to speak. So, in essence, we have a kind of animal mind that's running the show, acting on emotion and instinct. CBT, substance abuse treatment then, is really about getting people to activate the frontal lobe part of the brain, the jockey, to better able control the strong impulses of the horse it's riding. Make no mistake, the horse is a very important part of our experience of being human as this is how we really relate to other human beings. This is where our emotional strength and power comes from, but it has to be directed. That part of the brain doesn't do that well. This is where the jockey comes in. The jockey part of the brain can funnel this emotional power into a rational direction. The jockey can take the long-term consequences into account, whereas the emotional brain is focused on the present. So substance abuse can very much be about making people more conscious of their behaviors and the consequences of those behaviors. In other words, training the jockey to be better able to handle the horse and together they win races. Okay, so where am I going with this? To me, intuition can be when these two different orientations for reacting to the natural world are balanced in such a way that it has a sort of synergistic effect and allows people to intuit future events. This is emotion plus intelligence. We've all had experiences like this. This experience is generally called proprioception or an awareness of the feedback our body is giving us at any moment. Yet there are times when our body tells us a ton of information for which we have no rational explanation. And then it turns out that the choice we made due to a gut feeling turned out to save our lives, or keep us safe from something, or gave us some kind of information that was helpful to us regarding future events. For most of us, this gut feeling, for lack of a better way to describe it, comes through our body. But it's more than just an emotional response. Even though it may defy logic, it still has to be interpreted through the frontal lobe before we make a judgment to act or dismiss it by, say, rationalizing it. Most of the time, emotions are very direct. We feel these feelings directly in our body. But intuition can be much more subtle. Therefore, it can be difficult to think rationally or intuitively when we are emotionally activated. Intuition can be much more indirect in how it presents in our bodies, although it can be just as powerful. You know, I know some people who have gotten very good at trusting their intuition. Their intuitive types seem to be able to balance emotional thinking and rational thinking in such a way that it yields a very nuanced and logic-defying third way in which to access information that is useful to them.
1: You know, that kind of makes me think of, um, you know, we work in law enforcement, we work in a prison. And I always found it very interesting when I first started working in a correctional environment, when there were senior staff who would be on shift and they'd say, there's an energy shift. I can tell that something's going to happen. Yes. And they were almost always correct. that There was going to be some sort of incident. And just, you know, when I came into the field, I was like, that's amazing. How did you do that? And it turns out the longer that you work in an environment like that where it's important to pay attention to that intuition, I feel like those skills get honed in a way.
0: Yeah, definitely. So there is a difference between instinct, which they say um, mm-hmm. instinctual thinking is more about understanding past experiences so the longer you've done something over and over and over again you sort of develop an instinct for it okay okay and so that's kind of what you're referring to but then there's this other part of it where you sort of sense that this is happening on an energetic level almost through your body something in the energy in your body shifts as a reaction to what is happening outside of you
1: and it's like it's not anything that's obviously you know that you're obviously perceiving that's what's so interesting about it
0: right So to me, this is like precognition. Conceptually, I know these ideas may be different in nature, but intuition, which is something that I think that pretty much all people are capable of with the right amount of time and attention, can give us very real world feedback through our bodies about the world around us, including potential future events. So according to the works of Daniel Kahneman, who is a Nobel Prize winning psychologist who has done a lot of work on things like judgment and decision making. Intuition is the ability to automatically generate solutions without long logical arguments or evidence for it. Intuition was also studied at Yale University in the 1970s where it was discovered that some people could make decisions very quickly and not be able to give a rational explanation as to how they came up with these decisions. So what about Abraham Lincoln? He's an interesting case as it would seem that he had gotten to a point where he could very much read and nurture his intuitive mind in this regard. Was he capable of precognition? Perhaps, but I would argue that he was just more in tune with his intuitive mind and able to read the signs he was given through the wisdom of his body. So bear with me here, but we all know that anxiety can have a tremendous effect on a person's digestive system. Anxiety can give a person ulcers, heartburn, or even constipate them. Hmm. Yeah.
1: I see what you did there.
0: Okay. This is why, for any kind of digestion issue, one of the courses of treatment is to help deal with stress in a person's life. The whole part of Lincoln using the laxative for bouts of this, I would argue, was very real body feedback he was receiving. In this way, he probably used body feedback of all kinds a great deal when making political decisions. You hear this all the time in the form of, say, a judge knowing if he or she made a good decision by how they slept that night. Or say, that old warden of ours who changed his mind about a decision at the last minute because of a dream he had and the feelings associated with that dream.
1: Did that actually happen? That did. Whoa, okay.
0: That might have been before you started I think it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he actually announced it to everybody. It was interesting. Hmm. So there was also the case of the article I read years ago, which I brought up on this podcast before, about the guy who received herpes outbreaks as a form of real-time feedback from his body when he tried to ignore what his intuitive mind was telling him. There are a lot of times when we use our intuitive minds to help us through these decisions, and yes, oftentimes our body will physically reinforce this in a number of ways. But with our digestive systems being one of the most powerful, hence the expression, I have a gut feeling. So this is why phenomenology is interesting to me as a way to interpret the world around us. The body gives us so much information if we pause to listen to it. As for Lincoln, while he was also said to be a spiritualist and engaged in the occult from time to time, which also depends a great deal on understanding intuitive cues through the body, by the way, these sensations seem to have an influence on his political decision-making, which also made him, in the eyes of many scholars, a towering political genius. I can't say if he was able to predict the future in a Nostradamus sort of way by looking into actual events, but I would argue that he was better able to listen to intuitive cues in his body which gave him very important information on how to proceed with decisions. You know, back when I was a kid, I can remember when I became fascinated with earning a PhD. I also had an intuitive sense that I would one day complete a PhD. Does this mean I foretold the future? possibly, but more likely, I listened to my intuitive mind, which, through my body, told me that this was the way I needed to go, in life, and I pushed forward until I succeeded. Lincoln suffered many defeats in his political career before becoming president. In this sense, I could see anyone being able to, quote-unquote, predict the future, so to speak, as, like I said earlier, we've all had experiences like this, whether we called them precognition, intuition, or rationalized it as a coincidence. So there are also other explanations for precognition, like being able to tap into the Akashic Record and things like that, but I didn't want to get too metaphysical here. But the experience of being able to recognize our intuitive minds and how they point us in directions that we envision for ourselves and sometimes others has definitely been a part of the human experience and used to predict and prepare for our futures.
1: So for our listeners, you guys don't really know what our creative process is. But typically what we do is we pick a topic, we pick a case that um, we can use as a lead-in for that topic, and then we go to work separately. And so we don't typically read each other's notes before we sit down to record the episode. And so we don't usually know what the other person is going to talk about. And, you know, David, I love you for for many, many reasons, but one (laughs) of the reasons is that like, I'll I'll anticipate what I think you're going to do. Yeah. And you you never cease to surprise me. And so, you know, I really didn't think that you were... I thought you were going to go the metaphysical route for this episode. Yeah. I I really did. But I love the fact that you talked about, number one, the history of Abraham Lincoln. There were so many things about him that I don't know. And now I have to read that book because he sounds like the most interesting person potentially ever. And, you know, this whole idea of intuition, you know, when we're talking about things like precognition, we're getting into those topics that are kind of out there. Right. Where, you know, you can really see people being like, oh, that's kind of kooky. Like, I, you know, I'm not on board with that. But then when you bring it down to kind of this idea of intuition, I really do think that that's something that every person can relate to on some level. You know, not everybody has experienced a premonition or had a precognitive dream. I, you know, I certainly haven't. Right. But I can certainly relate to this idea of intuition. And as you were talking about it, it made me think of one of my favorite books, which I may have mentioned on the podcast previously, but it's called The Gift of Fear. And it's by Gavin De Becker, And he kind of talks about this idea of following our intuition or our instincts. Because a lot of times we've been trained to dismiss them, to not pay attention to them, to not think that, you know, because we don't want to be rude or we don't want to seem weird or or we don't want to hurt people's feelings or whatever the case may be. Yep. Um, so, you know, it's kind of interesting. We start on a topic and then it leads us into all of these different directions. Like who would have thought that you would be talking about intuition in this episode. And I'm talking about the reversal of time. (laughs) Yeah,
0: no, exactly. You surprised me with this one too, because I didn't expect that that's where you would go.
1: And I may never go there again, but for (laughs) for this episode, it just was like so interesting. Yeah. So this was a really fun episode, um, at least for me. And, you know, like I said, David, I just always love hearing your viewpoint and your thoughts. And, um, you know, we'll have links to some of the articles, certainly to the book that you mentioned, Gore Vidal's book, um, on the discussion page of our website. You can find that at psychologyafterdark.com. And you can also send us messages from there. We love hearing from you guys, um, whether it's suggesting a topic or just uh, letting us know what you thought of an episode or just that you're out there listening. We always appreciate those. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark. And David, we're on Patreon. Yes, we are. Big step for us. And we have some really cool extras if you become a patron, including being able to vote on our season four finale topic. We have that coming up pretty soon. Um, you'd also be able to join us for a live stream Q&A session at the end of season four, which I'm really looking forward to being able to actually see some of our listeners. Um, And then we also have access to exclusive content, including our special follow-up episode on the Slender Man Stabbing, and we have exclusive merchandise for our patrons as well, so uh, please do check that out. And David, we have a very special episode dropping in a couple of weeks where we will be talking to one of the best-known social psychologists and one of the true founders of the field, Dr. Richard Nisbet.
0: Yeah, that's exciting.
1: I I am so excited about that. I really can't wait for it. And so we really hope that you guys join us.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written, hosted, and produced by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and Starlight by Softspace, both provided by Jamendo.